This is Literature Out Loud at Dalnavert Museum, The Extrasodes. Hello again. Uh, my name is Charlene Van Buchenhout uh, for uh, Dalnavert Museum. And today uh, we are doing Extrasode number four for uh, The Time Machine, which is series one of the Literature Out Loud Dalnavert Museum podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Vanessa Warren, who is the associate, an associate professor for the English department at the University of Manitoba. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Hi, Shirley. Uh, so, so far in our episodes for The Time Machine, um, we have been introduced to uh, the Eloy and the Morlocks. Um, I think in our chapters, we're doing the 16 chapter version. So I think we're already all, all the way up to chapter uh, 12 at this point. Um, so this is a whole future of England that H.G. Uh, Wells has introduced us to. But can we first talk about the Eloy and, um, and that population and, and maybe talk about uh, Weena in particular? Sure. Maybe we'll start with the Eloy generally because they are fascinating. So um, when we first encounter them with the time traveler, they seem very peaceful, um, uh, childlike, really positive. Um, they place a garland of flowers to welcome him around his neck. Um, they are kind of curious, but not, it seems, particularly intelligent. And then they have some really um, remarkable characteristics in the sense that they're very small, petite people, very slight, you know, um, a childlike in size. Um, and one of their um, characteristics that's really notable is you, you don't have a strong sense of, of, of sex difference of male versus female. And even the children apparently just seem like slightly smaller versions of the adult Eloy. So they're not a very differentiated community. They're quite androgynous. They're kind of without age. We also learn, uh, which is worrying, that there's no elderly Eloy and there's no kind of infirm Eloy, like ill or disabled um, individuals in this, in this community. So the Eloy look pretty good. They look quite um, leisured and refined. They enjoy their lives. They dance, they sing, they flirt. They swim, uh, but there are some troubling realities behind that. And as we get to know Weena, the, the kind of character that the time traveler bonds with, some of those more troubling aspects become clear. So we find out, for example, that um, Weena is like a child, afraid of the dark. Uh, we find out that she's illiterate. She can't read, even the inscriptions on the buildings she has no idea what, what writing or reading is. Um, she's carried around by the time traveler like a child in kind of complicated ways. Um, and Charlene, as you suggested, we're gonna call her female because the time traveler does. He will call her like his little weena and his little woman, but even he's a little bit vague on her, on her gender identity, on her, um, uh, her, her, her reality as, a, as an adult woman Eloy. So the Eloy are a very complicated lot. The one thing we can say that makes Weena like non-representative, like different than the rest is her loyalty. The rest seem to be kind of like, oh look, it's a time traveler. Oh look, it's fruit. Oh look, it's flowers. Whereas um, Weena concentrates on him, 
creates a kind of bond of gratitude. He's rescued her from drowning. Uh, all the other Eloy just kind of watched her float down the river and he'll intervene. So, um, you know, she seems like a, a distinct representative of this group in some ways. So she's both like Eloy and not um, like all of the other Eloy. And there is a bond between them. She's, she's made brave by the relationship. She'll take risks with him. Um, and they have this kind of eight days of connection together in this very distant future. Wow, yeah, she does seem like she's got something else uh, to her than the rest of the, the Eloy, mm -hmm. uh, which is why we feel connected to her too and listening. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so it's interesting about the Eloy, like they don't, um, like they're, like you said, they're very leisurely, uh, but they don't make things. And like as humans, <laughs> that's kind of like our thing. Um, there's no machines, there's no buildings that are, are theirs that they had made. Mm. Uh, like they don't, they don't make their sh clothes or shoes. So can, what can you tell us about like what, mm -hmm. uh, what does that tell us about this mm -hmm. uh, community? Yeah, well, it seems so identic, doesn't it? Like I can uh, uh, hang out, you know, and eat fruit all day and not have to labor, not have to, to work. Um, where are the where are the factories? Where are the stores? They don't seem to own property, and they don't seem going back to your point about like buildings and things that they build. They don't seem to have houses. Like the the time travel will tell us that the individual house, but also the household, like the family unit and any kind of attached servants, doesn't exist anymore. They live in a kind of communal world where they all get together and sleep at night in, in big old ruined buildings instead of going to individual homes. And so this, on the one hand, looks great, right? Like um, the, the narrator will think, oh, it's, it's a communist paradise that's developed, right? No, no more um, strife, no more conflict, no more war, no more silly battles over property. Like it's, it's this kind of ideal world. But we're going to find out that without the pressures of, say, commerce or, or the push to enterprise or, or property, you know, um, for them to defend or accumulate, that they have become very soft and very um, childlike. Um, and so they don't make anything creatively or industriously. And, and while that looks very appealing initially, um, we find out it's a kind of sign uh, for us to be very suspicious about and, and it will prove to be kind of a nightmarish condition. So it is super important, as you point out, that even their like lovely tunics just seem to appear magically out of nowhere, um, as does their food and their sandals. Um, so it, it looks really good. And we're set up as readers to be quite uh, enamored of this before kind of we come to some darker realizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, exactly what you said, like they, their food just kind of appears for them. They don't even uh, cook any of their meals. Yeah. Um, and in fact, like the, the Eloy are vegetarians, we would call them. And the mm -hmm. time traveler becomes one while he's there, he, he eats the eating only fruits that they ha they have there, um, and when he returns in his own time, he insists on eating a plate of mutton before even telling his yes. his tale. Um, so what what is the deal with meat and meat eating in this novella? Well, this is where we say kind of um, uh, be warned. We're going to give a lot away right now. Yeah. So if yeah. you're not up up to speed, um, alert, alert. alert. Um, 
because yeah, yeah, complete spoiler alert because um, meat is going to matter a lot. And uh, just as you've said, Charlene, it seems like the Garden of Eden, a place where the fruit is just there and they eat it. And even the rinds disappear mysteriously down holes in their marble tables, you know, like there's, there's this real celebration of kind of their meatless existence. Um, and yet the first thing um, that the um, time traveler will do is down two glasses of champagne and say, keep a plate of that mutton ready for me. And, and as he's kind of confirms that he's been time traveling, he does it through a mouthful of mutton, right? So, so what is meat eating? Um, is it um, uh, something we need to evolve beyond that will become like um, vegetarians in the future? Or is it something we need to return to like a, um, a biblical um, uh, Genesis Garden of Eden scenario? Or um, is, is meat eating for us like this devastating clue to the, the uh, corruption of the future in the sense that um, we don't exactly, as you say, Charlene, see um, the Eloi eating meat, but we pretty soon discover that the Eloi are meat. And um, when our time traveler descends into the Morlock tunnel, the subterranean world of the of the Morlocks, he's going to see a meal set out, and it's not fruit. It's it's a red piece of meat, a large piece of meat. And he wonders, like, what kind of creature is this? He's thinking all of the non-human uh, mammals have become extinct. And so slowly we gather evidence as readers um, towards the kind of horrific discovery that the Morlocks are farming the Eloi. And um, what, what we've got is a case of a kind of strange, almost cannibalism that defines this society. And suddenly things make sense. Why are the Eloi afraid of the dark? Um, who are these strange creatures who kind of come out only at night? Um, uh, where are um, you know, these um, gifts of clothing and sandals and fruit coming from and why? So uh, this very dark reality is revealed and a lot of it focuses around meat. But it is really important we note that meat eating is not being like narrowly vilified. Meat eating and monstrousness are not linked because the, the modern man, the, the inventor, the adventurer of this text, the first thing he's gonna eat is meat when he gets uh, back to the present day. So it's a really complicated viewpoint on meat for sure that we're getting from H.G. Wells here. Yeah, he doesn't get turned off. He of meat after seeing that and witnessing it and even like uh, yeah feeling his feelings about it is it doesn't turn him off he really wants it when he gets back yeah yeah so interesting uh so just to do like a little bit of a sidebar into uh victorian mm -hmm. attitudes um where is, is hg wells um saying something about victorian attitudes towards vegetarianism um mm -hmm. was vegetarianism a victorian practice yeah so it's a great question. Um, so uh, vegetarianism is, of course, something that isn't exclusive to the Victorians. They didn't invent it, but they absolutely practiced it and, and they talked about it a lot in their culture. So the first kind of vegetarian cookbook published in English dates to 1812. It's called Vegetable Cookery. 
Um, and in the 1880s, towards the end of the Victorian period, there's going to be a very successful vegetarian restaurant right in London on Oxford Street. So vegetarianism is around, but right in the middle of the Victorian period, vegetarians are going to get organized and vocal. So they're going to um, organize vegetarian societies. They're going to have monthly meetings and annual conferences. They're going to publish pamphlets and um, newspapers to get the word out. And there's some really interesting connections between vegetarianism in the period and other social movements, such as the anti-vivisection movement, the animal rights movement, and also um, early feminist um, efforts uh, towards suffrage. So a lot of the same people were involved in vegetarianism, animal rights, a very logical connection, but also in other progressive movements um, like women's rights. And so um, we see, for example, um, a wonderful Victorian woman named Anna Kingsford. She was an anti-vivisectionist and um, she was um, also a trained medical doctor. She went to Paris and trained as a doctor and she was an author. And she wrote a, a treatise on vegetarianism where she suggested that becoming vegetarian would return society, um, she's thinking of British people, would return society back to their kind of original natural food, like to a kind of lost paradise of vegetarianism. So it's interesting, Sherling, because H.G. Wells is thinking towards the future and vegetarianism, but many Victorians are thinking about vegetarianism as a return to kind of a lost Eden, a lost past. But for sure, they are raising concerns about slaughterhouses, about the ethical treatment of animals. On the other hand, many um, vegetarians are talking about health and being healthy. And they're arguing that um, a plant-based diet is a, is a healthier option for the, for the modern human. So lots is happening for Victorians on vegetarianism for sure. Hmm. And that's kind of echoing um, things that we are uh, learning or accepting <laughs> these days uh, in 2020 yes. about having a more plant-based diet. Um, yes. It's healthy for the world and for your body. And yeah, okay. I didn't know that about um, Victorians that they were into vegetarianism. That's so interesting. Let's move on um, to get a little bit of the Morlocks in here. <laughs> the time traveler sees this relationship between the upper classes and the working class people of his own time, of Victorian times, uh, as the starting point of the shocking realities of the Eloy and the Morlock life. Mm -hmm. And we just found out what the Morlocks are into. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that H.G. Wells is saying about, about class structure in this section? It's, it's very, very complicated and messy, um, for sure. Uh, but he's definitely putting forward the possibility that this very distant future is a kind of uh, zone for, for revenge, that um, the uh, exploited, oppressed um, laboring classes have had their, um, their justice in the end in the sense that while they've been pushed underground, we might want to be thinking about coal mining here. While, while the Morlocks are also the people with the machines, we want to think about factories. Well, these people are, these distant descendants of people, the Morlocks, are, are laboring, they're linked with technology, they're linked with practices around kind of commerce, right? They're, they're um, also quite literally eating the rich, right? Um, in the sense that um, the kind of leisured, aristocratic, 
not laboring, idle, um, wealthy are, you know, um, the time traveler proposes um, represented in this future. Their descendants are represented in the future by the Eloi who have lost their, their verb, who've lost their intelligence, who've lost their um, ability to defend themselves and essentially become cattle. So that um, interestingly, in a world in which very few working class people could afford meat on a regular basis, um, they are now uh, carnivorous. Um, and that carnivorous energy is linked with a kind of revenge. Like they've been um, repressed, they've been mistreated, and now they're coming back. Um, and, and having their way with the former masters. So when we arrive in this world, understandably through the eyes of the time traveler, we think, oh, it looks great to be Eloy um, because it looks like being a rich person who just hangs out in their garden and eats fruit um, and doesn't worry about paying the, the bills, you know, or the rent being due. But when we start to kind of unpack it, we see that one of the messages the text sends is that that kind of inequity is going to get you in the end, you know, that you'll pay the price, that, that future generations will pay the price for those abuses or inequalities. But also kind of the suggestion that work is good for you, like work keeps you um, um, aggressive and, and um, creative and, um, uh, you know, agile in ways that the Eloi are not. So even though the Morlocks are this very degenerated, you know, cannibalistic society who, you know, live underground and are blinded by light and many other kind of associations that are quite negative. They're also kind of strong and, and uh, capable um, and to be feared. And so the suggestion here is that we'll kind of watch out for the working class, you know, like if you're going to keep this in balance, um, it's going to take a long, long time, but bad things could happen. Yeah. Yeah. The, when the time traveler is like battling the Morlocks, um, and he kind of stops because he feels sorry for them because they, they're scared of the fire and they're scared of, they're sort of yeah. scared of being up on the, where their meat is, you know, it's an interesting, their, their fear I found anyway. Yeah. I think you're right, Charlene. And, and what we could add to that is just the sense that like they have a limit on them and their limit has to do with light, right? Like they can come out on the moonless nights, they can come out in the dark, they're effective in dark places, but in the light, right? And, and that's part of their monstrousness. We should just note, right, how dependent that representation is on ideas about blindness and, and disability, right? Mm. Like by having the Morlocks be kind of blundering and blinded by light, Wells is really making them, uh, you know, more, more um, lesser, uh, uh, more, more to be feared, mm. um, more degenerate by linking them with, with visual disability. And it's something that, that as contemporary readers, we should really be kind of pausing and thinking about, right? Like, yeah. what does it mean to make the monster um, of the text kind of animal, but to also make them blind and to give them a, a visual difference that, that is a disability is, is something really complicated for this text. So something for us to think about for sure. And that kind of um, very difficult scenes of violence, you know, against the Morlocks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the time traveler says he just wants to hit a bunch of Morlocks in the head, right? Like he's aggressive towards yeah. these figures. So um, he brings conflict and violence into this space. He's not just a witness to it. And that's really important. And part of what kind of 
initially um, energizes him, but later disgusts him is the notion of him enacting violence against uh, blind creatures. So really complicated stuff for us as contemporary readers. Yeah, I felt his um, anger and violence towards just his behavior was more troubling to me than than the the thing that the Morlocks and the Eloy had set up. You know, it's like that's their life. Yeah, that he's coming in and being disgusted by everything, and and uh, it's not really his place to do that. Yeah, it's troubling. Then again, then again, they are trying to eat him at a certain point, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what they do. <laughs> yeah, it's what they do. Fair enough. That's all they get by. I wonder if they eat fruit as well. It's a great question. Um, we know that they smell like they eat meat. Like he smells like an offensive kind of odor on, on them. And, um, you know, he can kind of smell like the iron in the blood in their spaces. So hard to say, like they, they're definitely not linked with the kind of ideas we have about fruit, right? You know, like good for you, nutritious, balanced diet. I, I don't, they don't seem to exude balanced diet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Vitamin D. I don't know yeah. Like that. I have lots of questions about like how their body is working, especially if they are not yeah. you know, getting light on their skin and yeah, lots of skin questions anyway. So, okay. Um, all right. I don't know if this will be, if that will be part of it. I'll have to look at the chapter list and see if we've hit that section or not or not. But okay. So we have hit the section though on museums appearing in the novel, um, which is such an interesting, uh, thing to have. If you don't have anything else, you have this white sphinx and then you have a museum with no other mm -hmm. buildings. This is the museum, the Palace of Green Porcelain, they call it. Um, it's, the, it's a ruined museum that Weena and the Time Traveler go to. Uh, and their visit there um, provides us with some uh, memorable moments, uh, most notably the Time Traveler's celebration dance in the dust that he um, describes in detail. Uh, so what, um, do you have any thoughts about uh, museums of the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let's talk about the, the, the museum. Um, because you're in a museum right now, and so uh, it makes lots of sense. So we have to kind of remind ourselves, and the story keeps reminding us, that we're in London. Like, we're still in London. He hasn't changed location, right? So at one point, he's going to say, oh, like in this neighborhood of London, you know, as it is in my time, this is now present. And so we're, we're kind of just moving around London. So in some ways, it's not surprising that we'd be stumbling across a museum, right? Because of the significant investments that Victorians made in museums and that our own period makes in the museums, this museum is really interesting because it's a ruin. Like all of the buildings and the, and the works of public art left over in this radically future London. It's falling apart. It's full of dust. It's uh, broken and run down. No one goes there to do what they're meant to do at a museum. So we think of museums now, um, as we should, as places of conservation, preservation, education, right? Museums kind of store and protect the past so we can learn. But, but what in this case this museum does is it, is it preserves the time traveler's own present 
So he's seeing himself as something of the distant past. And then he's also in there desperately trying to learn about all the things that have happened in the many, many years that he's traveled through. But everything's rusted and decayed and it's falling apart. So ultimately, he doesn't get educated there. Weena certainly doesn't get educated there. Um, but instead, he uses it as a kind of a source for weapons, right? He's going to get some matches, some camphor, a big iron bar to kind of knock the Morlocks over with. So it becomes more of a like a, a storehouse of weaponry, like a, a, it's like a shopping expedition. And that's not what we think of when we think of museums. So that kind of educational, cultural role is not there. Or one really interesting thing is that he, he's excited about the possibility of a library. And then he finds that that section of the museum has just all decayed to nothingness. And he starts thinking about his own work as an author. And this is like one of those moments where you can almost hear H.G. Wells kind of bubbling up, right? Where he's like, I think of all the things I wrote that no one is going to read mm -hmm. in this kind of illiterate, distant future. So it's a very neat um, uh, thing. And of course, um, we, we, we should be kind of thinking about this idea of, of how clever it is to have a museum in the future of the past, like it's kind, you know, like museums are like time machines, right? Yeah, and yeah. so the idea of the time traveler visiting a museum is just so neat. So um, yeah, and and I'm just grateful that the museums that I get to visit are cleaner and in better shape and <laughs> aren't full of Morlocks um, uh, like the porcelain palaces. So yeah, that's, uh, it's a good reminder of the temporary nature of some of some of the things. Uh, like books and and um, textiles that we preserve, uh, try to preserve as much as possible, but they are, are organic materials that, yeah, yeah, over that many years. It's a lot of years. Yeah, depending on how, what our um, techniques are for preservation. Do you have anything uh, you want to add, Vanessa, for uh, the time machine that I didn't get to? We covered lots of ground, Charlene. I really enjoyed um, chatting with you about the, the novella. Um, I guess the one thing I could add is if anyone knows whether H.G. Wells was a vegetarian or not, I'd love to know. So I tried to kind of look it up, but he seems to have, just as the novella does, really mixed feelings about meat eating and whether it's a sign of being like a, a, a degenerated individual or like the apex of kind of human evolution. So it's kind of an interesting um, and somewhat debated topic. People often put H.G. Wells on like famous vegetarians lists, but there's really no evidence for that. So yeah. kind of neat to think about. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Vanessa. And um, I'll look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future, maybe for some other podcast episodes. Thank you, Charlene. Good luck with this project. Best wishes to Down the Vert. <laughs>